Welcome to the Out of Privilege podcast featuring Dr. Byron Burkhalter, where we will talk about issues of racism, white privilege, and the role they play in current affairs. Byron earned his doctorate in sociology from UCLA and has been focused on issues of race, biracial identity, whiteness, and multiracial political coalitions in U.S. history for more than 30 years. He has taught at the university level, spoken at large public rallies, and published numerous pieces on these issues. He takes an historical and sociological look at the systemic racism that the United States in particular is battling today. I'm Genevieve Haldeman, and I'll be your host. Football players being booed for peaceful protests, the shooting of two police officers in L.A. and its impact on support for the Black Lives Matter movement, and anti-racism education being called un-American by the president. These are just a few of the topics connected to race making news this week. In today's episode, Byron offers perspective on each of these and how they perpetuate racism in the country today. Take a listen and let us know your perspective in the comments. So let's start talking about the NFL. They've restarted their season and in uh, showing their solidarity for the Black Lives Matter movement, players of opposing teams have done a variety of things from kneeling to locking arms to staying in the locker room during the national anthem and fans who were in the stadiums there's not a whole lot of them but the fans who were in the stadiums for at least one game actively booed the the players what's going on there why is this happening and you know the fans keep trying to tell everyone how to protest what not to protest to to shut up to not be part of the discussion What's your take on that? So uh, I think I want to start off with a take that I heard that I thought was interesting. I'm not sure if I know exactly what to make of it. The fans that would come to an NFL game, that would go to an NFL game right now, in this one sort of observation I heard, are those fans who are less worried about COVID-19, particularly those fans who might see it as a hoax. So politically, the idea is, that the fans that show up at football games right now are the ones most likely not to believe that the COVID is real. And those are the fans who also politically are going to have an understanding of anything dealing with anti-racism as an attack upon them. So that's one way uh, to sort of explain what happened. But I'm actually curious about it in a different way because a lot of the grief that athletes who have taken anti-racism stance have received happened, you know, has been happening for the last few years. Colin Kaepernick is still not signed by an NFL team. He has lost his job. Eric Reed, who had a career year last uh, season, I believe is not signed by any team right now. And he's the person who was also kneeling um, the year that Colin Kaepernick was was kneeling as well. And so there's a certain orientation that I'm interested in fans towards players, which is there's a certain set of fans who believe that the players should only play should not have opinions and should be docile 
except for playing this extremely violent game. And so I think in that sense, fans can be like owners when they're thinking about the players. The owner perspective to me is the perspective that says, you are with us or you are against us. Owners, particularly in the NFL, have historically been people who said, players will do exactly what I say. Probably the most uh, influential football owner right now is a guy named Jerry Jones who owns the Dallas Cowboys. And he just absolutely said in the last couple of years, my players will not kneel. Basically saying, if you want to stay on the team, uh, you're going to have to stand for the national anthem. Now this year, he doesn't know where to go. He's been uh, oddly quiet um, because he can feel that the winds are blowing. But the idea of the owner is everybody is either cheerleading for the team or against the team. Now that cheerleader perspective is a third perspective I'd like to bring up, which is there is this idea, there is this role really, that you simply cheer for the team, very much like a cheerleader in football. And that's how, that's your job. No matter what the team does, that's your job. No matter what happens to you, that's your job. So, for example, cheerleaders in the National Football League have been filing lawsuits based on the abuse that they have suffered. Uh, I think the Washington football team, which has given up its racist moniker but can find no other for the moment and so is known as the Washington professional football team, I believe their cheerleaders a number of them, a large number of them, have just come out to talk about this very thing. Uh, I think the Oakland Raiders, or now the Las Vegas Raiders, had the same thing. Now, the cheerleader is sort of a metaphor. The owner is a metaphor, and the fan is a metaphor for me. There are these sort of three ways of thinking. So the cheerleader only has this role of cheering for the team. The owners who, by the way, are the ones who are accused of sort of abusing these cheerleaders. Take everybody, either as a cheerleader or a detractor. You're there with us or against us. And the fans in Kansas City that booed sort of have that owner perspective towards the players, but not towards the team. I have spent way too much time with sports fans, football fans in particular, And you will never meet somebody more hypercritical than a football fan. They will tell you, I I had a, I have a college friend uh, who's into our, our football team at the university of Oklahoma. He'll tell me, Hey, we just signed a linebacker. This will come like in spring or February or something like that. And I'll be like, how do you know that? But he does know. And he knows the strengths and weaknesses of the teams and the teams that they compete against. And he has worries and concerns, and he'll voice those. And nobody loves the team more than him. I know professional football fans who have been rooting for a losing team for decades. A team that has never won. 
They love the team, and you will never find anybody more critical about the team with a more sort of sober, realistic approach to what they have this season. Now, they still have hope quite often, but they know in fine detail where the strengths and weaknesses are. And when that team inevitably starts to lose again, they can tell you exactly why. Not just on this play, not just on this team, but the history of this position for this team. It can be some of the most boring stuff you ever heard. But what is unmistakable is the love from those fans. So, two football teams. Kansas City Chiefs and the Houston Texans lock arms. The NFL is looking for some way to bridge the divide, to say, yes, the player's experience on this matters, but we're trying not to alienate too many customers, so they just locked arms. But that was not cheerleader enough for them. You can look at a lot of the things that go on, you know, both for us, Uh, professionally in the DEI work, uh, but in the country. And you can find these orientations of the owner who expects only cheering, of the cheerleaders who will perform that exact role, and from this other group of fans who can show love and be critical at the same time. What's interesting about the example that you're given is that it, it screams of similarity to what the Dixie Chicks went through. I guess they're now called the Chicks, having dropped the the Dixie moniker uh, earlier this year. When they criticized President uh, Bush in London and their fans were rabid against them, they sent death threats and all kinds of crazy communications about how they should just shut up and sing. They even wrote a song about the experience they had Um, being told to shut up and sing and not be um, vocal on these issues. And I think in your analogy, one of the the groups that is missing in that that mix, and that quite frankly seems to have a lesser role or a more one-dimensional role, is the players, whether it's the, the chicks, as they're now called, or the football players or the baseball players or the basketball players or actors, whatever it may be. How do you see their role in this mix? Yeah, I think that's a really important point to bring up. As I, as I recall, like just as an analogy, LeBron James, a, a professional basketball player, uh, was told to shut up and dribble uh, when he first started speaking out. Um, I can remember years ago when Michael Jordan was asked why he wasn't speaking out on racial issues. He said something to the effect of both sides buy shoes which at the time kind of got a pass, I thought, um, as things go around. I guess I think of the players as sort of in the position of having had the, or having to have the double consciousness. They both have to understand their own experience and the fullness of their human experience, but also understand that, especially in the NFL, they can be cut in a heartbeat, just like that. The average career is still just a little bit over a couple of years. Um, and there's always somebody else that wants to take your place. So they have to have a sense of their own lives, the fans who see them one-dimensionally, the owners who see them one-dimensionally, and they have to, in effect, navigate 
in the way that so many of us have to navigate um, in somebody else's space. Um, and they hear the cheering and they hear the booze, but they know it's not really about them, that the feelings from the owners and the feelings from the fans don't have anything to do with them personally, have to do with them performatively as they fulfill the role that makes the owners and the fans happy. There's some interesting parallels, I think, between that and uh, employees in a corporate environment who are having, you know, been in the communications function for as long as I have been and having told employees that they are not allowed to speak on behalf of the company and, you know, any any opinions are their own and they need to express them separately. Um, but it's it seems so difficult for players like that to separate their personal feelings uh, from the, the performance that they're expected to give, especially when that is also the platform they have to be able to articulate their position. And it is the, the vehicle that they have to influence change. And I just, I just wonder if more players came together to um, have solidarity with each other, could they overcome those, those issues? Um, and I know there have been strikes and there have been other things that, that players have tried to do. And, and I think quite successfully, uh, you know, the NBA managed the player strike earlier this year, uh, just a few weeks ago, the same with the, the baseball teams. And I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, is there a way for them to, to come together and overcome that so that they can use that platform to, to influence change? Well, I, I do think that that's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think it was in the 90s uh, when a player for the UCLA college basketball team, Ed O'Bannon, uh, sued the NCAA for using his likeness. I think he got used in a video game, and like an EA Sports video game, but I, I may have that part wrong. It's been a while. Um, and the idea was is you're going to make money off of me, but your rules say... I can't benefit from that at all. And to me, that's economically speaking alone, just economically speaking, not the visual parts of it or anything else. That is in effect a slave system. And the idea that you give them a degree as their payment, but they're not able to sort of negotiate or get together, I just don't think that that's going to continue to operate. I think the, the visuals behind that are uh, not sustainable. Um, but players in most sports have had trouble maintaining solidarity. Uh, the one sport where that's not the case is baseball. Baseball also probably has the lowest percentage of at least African-American players of the three major sports in the, in the country. Um, although they have a big Latinx, um, group. Um, and I, and I don't know though, I don't know how many of them are international, but it's really difficult for performers, just like essential workers to really come together because they're in such a, an insecure economic state. So if you're a playing football, even in the National Football League, and you're on a team, 
you're making okay money. I mean, when you look at the breakdown of it and how it really comes out, it's not great money, but it's okay money. But your next job is the problem. If you lose this job and you're out of the league, what does the next job that you're qualified for allow you to make? And there's such a great dip there that that insecurity makes it very hard for them to to organize. And then when we see this in, in companies, at the lower levels, it's hard to keep solidarity when your job is not secure. So right now, if you're in a COVID environment and you get threatened and your job gets threatened, there's so many people out of work. How do you know what's coming next? And so keeping people insecure is one way to stop them from organizing. And I think that that's what, I think that that is part of what has gone on in the National Football League. Now, the basketball, the NBA is different. Um, there, the numbers of black players in particular is astronomical. You also have fewer players on the team and fewer players that can really do what they, what they do. And so once they decide, they actually can have some power. And I, I think the NBA has embraced that and really worked with the players to figure out how to how to work with them and and help them. I mean, I think it's interesting that they have allowed the players to change the names on the back of their jerseys to particular statements or now they've given them a list of approved statements, um, but they've they've allowed them to to protest in that way. And I think that the NBA, uh, could perhaps set an example for other sports organizations about how to work with the players to find uh, an approach to uh, protesting what's going on in the world. Yeah, and we should keep in mind that the NBA is a wee bit new to this. Like I can remember a player, gosh, all I can remember is his first name was Chris, and I think he played with the Denver Nuggets. Um, this would have been, I think, early 90s. But he was a Muslim, and he didn't want to stand for the national anthem because religiously he felt that putting a nation, um, using a nation as something that you sort of say a prayer to was against his beliefs. Um, very good player, very good point guard. I can still see him playing right now. Uh, he was pretty much out of the league fairly quickly, and he took a lot of heat, and there was no support from the NBA. But today's NBA is working on those things uh, at a much, much faster clip, especially since Donald Sterling was drummed out of, as owner of the Clippers. But you can also note where NBA teams are located. And they're not all completely urban environments, but they're mostly urban environments. When you're in the stadium in Kansas City, you're a little ways out. A lot of those stadiums are in different sorts of places, and you're pulling from all over the state. And so you don't necessarily have the same fan base that the NBA can can count on. And again, that, that that's really speculation on my part. It'd be interesting to see if anybody's looked at that a little bit closer. Let's switch gears a little bit. We're talking about more than uh, multiple topics today. And uh, the next topic I want to talk about is the officer shootings in L.A. And for those who may not be aware, there were two officers sitting in their car. An unidentified uh, individual walked up to the passenger side, shot into the car, hitting both officers, uh, both in critical condition for a period. I think one has been released this week, but both officers survived. There were some protests at the hospital. There were some people chanting, I hope they die. 
And I think that generated some uh, agita uh, against the, the overall Black Lives Matter movement, which seems unfair given that no one actually knows who the shooter is or the motivation of the shooter. It may not have been uh, somebody from the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, there were articles that came out later about the protesters not at all being affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement, and as a matter of fact, you know, thoroughly embracing that they were not part of that movement. But it still drove some to waver in their support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's interesting how a, uh, a single isolated incident like this can have such a negative impact on a, on a much larger movement when the reverse isn't necessarily true. And so I, I'm curious your take on what happened in LA and some of the reaction that has, has impacted the Black Lives Matter movement as a result. The, the first thing I would say is that that shooting is horrific. I, I still think about being in Dallas at a parking garage the same parking garage a day later is where uh, this guy takes a gun up and starts shooting into the streets of Dallas and I believe kills five police officers. Man, people ought to be able to go home after work. Those police officers should be with their families. There's no way they should be dealing uh, with something like this. I'm still wondering what in the world that was and who did that. And I, I really have heard very... Um, very little uh, about that. Um, I think that my understanding, uh, maybe I should say Black Lives Matters for me, and what it means um, in part for me is that policing was created, particularly in the South, but has also been utilized to maintain a racial divide by bringing physical violence and constant suspicion and insecurity and harassment to poor neighborhoods, particularly black and brown neighborhoods in the United States, but not, but not always. That has to stop. It just has to stop. It has to be rethought, reconceptualized, um, I'm not one who's really thinking about talking about it as reform of policing because I wouldn't talk about the reform of slavery. It has to be abolished. There are functions here that have to be redone and rethought. But to me, I would start from zero. I just think there's too much history there. However, that doesn't say that you can just go around and start killing police officers that is messed up. And frankly, the chance I heard about let them die, that's just awful. Having said that, my worry is that people who listen to that chant and think, wow, I don't know if I can support Black Lives Matters are part of the problem. They're part of the reason that these things never get solved because they have seen police brutality on video over and over again since the Rodney King trial. And if all of those videos, all of those instances, haven't shown them that their support of the police should be lessened, then you're going to have to explain to me how one incident in L.A. 
that is not connected to the Black Lives Matters movement hurts their support of that movement. To me, these are people who have been, who have sort of taken the abuser's mentality that the Black Lives Matters movement and everybody who is against policing are all in the same bucket. And so we're going to judge them all the same no matter what. But the police we can talk about as having a few bad apples. Or yes, there's a problem here or a problem there. But it's not really all, yeah, 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 yeah. But the Black Lives Matters movement has to be perfect and can have no violence or it should be stopped. But the police can go and have violence in every jurisdiction that they're in for their entire histories. I mean, do you think Louisville's police problems started with Brianna? Not a chance. Haven't ended with Brianna either. But the idea is that this group has to be perfect while we're going to be understanding about the police brutality. It's not going to make us become ever anti-police, no matter what. And again, I think that's the abuser's mentality. We forgive the abuser, but the abused has to be perfect. This is what happened in cases of sexual assault, even serious sexual assault with women, right? Well, you know, this young man's got quite a future ahead of him, and she was drunk, and she was dressed like that. Yeah, 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 right? And then you look at the people asking for the judge to be removed, and it's like, well, I don't support that. That seems a little radical. This is the problem that we have. The people who you actually need to create a broad political coalition to stop police brutality still like the police. They still like the abusers. They still feel the need to have somebody come in as muscle and keep them away from us. And so of course their support wanes because in truth it's their insecurities and that, you know, lifetime of education that, these are the good guys and how many police shows and how many movies, you know, over the years to convince them that this is good, no matter what I see from it. And this is bad if it's not perfect. That's the abuser's mentality. And the thing that is our biggest problem right now is that in our coalition, those abusers, we need them just numerically. We need those people who still wane, who get soft, who still feel like, no, the police are good because they need to believe it. We actually still need them in our political coalition. It's a problem. So someone asked me, what, are they, what do you tell the daughter of that police officer who was shot and who may not be coming home? And one of the things that I emphasize is, look, that the police sign up for a dangerous job. When they go to work every day, they sign up knowing that there's a possibility they may not come home. Now, that's not an ideal scenario. I don't want a society where, where that's the situation. But ultimately, that's what they've signed up for. The situation is so similar to black people who leave the house every day with a danger of not coming back. The difference is, is that they didn't sign up for a dangerous job. Their danger comes with just living on a day-to-day basis and not being in a profession that puts them at risk every day, unless, of course, they are also a police officer. But it is so challenging to hear people talk about 
what happens uh, and how do you explain it to those children? And it's like, well, the same way you've expected the black people to explain to their children what happens when there's violence perpetrated against them. And quite frankly, the difference there is that they've got the uh, resources of the entire police force of probably the federal investigators looking for whoever shot those police officers, and they're going to bring that person to justice. We know who shot Breonna Taylor. We know who killed uh, George Floyd. And in most cases, the majority of the black people who have died at the hands of police. And in most cases, they have not been charged. And so you know, the dramatic difference for me is not just in the, the power differential or in the, the lack of understanding, but it is also how you can see it so dramatically on one side and not see it so dramatically on the other side, given the, the similarities. Yeah, and it's, it's weird to even think, like, what exactly would I be explaining to the children of those officers? Their parents should be healthy, well they shouldn't have been shot. I hope the people that shot them or the person that shot them, I hope and I suspect they're going to be caught. They're going to go to jail. And I'm all for that. I wouldn't try and explain anything like, like that. I think the thing I would try and explain is, well, I wouldn't explain it to their children. I would just ask them, what I could do, what support I could give to them. But I wouldn't try and explain it to their children. It's not just these officers, and it's not just the shooting. Policing, the activity of policing has a history. It has a design. The way that they police in one neighborhood is not the same as the way they police in a different neighborhood. The people who are being policed harshly know it they have feelings about it this is going to get more and more dangerous if we try and keep this system going because the people in those neighborhoods as far as i can see have two short-term solutions to the brutality that they've experienced for their lifetimes they can either accept it and be dominated by it or for some of them they can fight back and some of them might fight back with violence of their own. I don't know that this is that at all. Like, I really don't know what happened in this particular incident. But policing right now, as quickly as possible, has to be changed. This is not going to get better. This is not going to get less violent. The police are not trying to de-escalate. And more and more, the people in those neighborhoods recognize that compliance still can get you killed. Like George Floyd is on the ground, man, for all those minutes. Was that not compliant enough? And there's been so many more even since then. I have nothing to explain to those children. I think the people that have supported the system of policing in this country for their lifetimes and with their tax dollars, they need to explain something to those children. I'm the ones trying to get those police officers out of those neighborhoods in the same way that they've been there for so long. Now, I think a lot of the reactions to things that are happening, whether it's with the NFL, the different sports teams, whether it is reactions to the shootings like in L.A., I think a lot of the reactions associated with that can be traced back to 
education and the educational system and how we have positioned the history of this country. And I think what's interesting that's also happened this week, and we're changing gears a little bit, is how the the, the current presidential administration is going after education. Um, and I think there's great analogies here, connections to the analogy that you drew around the owners, the fans, and the cheerleaders uh, around this as well. But you know, the first one I think is really the fact that the federal government has suspended uh, anti-bias training. There were two announcements this week where the EPA is postponing a speaker series on racism after the White House order. There's also uh, two national labs here in the Northern California area that have stopped doing any sort of anti-bias or anti-racism training as a result of that, that federal order as well. I'm curious what your take is on that, and then we can talk about a couple of the other educational things that came up this week as well. I think that this started a few years ago in Arizona, where there was a move to make um, or to, to defund the teaching of ethnic studies in public universities in Arizona, um, which I think passed, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. I'm a little surprised it took the administration this long to take this tact. So I would say two things about it. One, it may suggest that a more accurate understanding of this nation through education is powerful. It's so powerful that they would worry about it. That's an amazing thing to say, especially in a country that has devalued social sciences and you know, history departments have been closing all around the country. Apparently, a knowledge of your actual history is, is pretty powerful. And then the second thing I would say is that there is work in the administration to make us see each other as the other. And so what they're trying to do is to separate us. So the idea is that you should not get other perspectives on your country. You should not be educated about different parts of your history, different aspects of your history. Uh, for me, I believe African-American history is the history of all of us in this country. That it's not separate, although it, it's not that you shouldn't teach it in a, in, a, in a separate form, that you can't focus on it or something like that but that this is your history that they're trying to take from you. I don't know my immigrant history, not from the South. I can tell you the, the Irish and the Italian, but I can't tell you as much about the Guatemalan and the Nicaraguan because that part of my history has been kept from me. This is how we can belong to each other, by understanding these perspectives. And what you have is, politically, there is a group Beyond party affiliation, there is a group that is working to get us closer together, to belong to each other, to understand each other's perspectives, because that's how you develop trust and create community. And now you have this other political group, again, beyond party. This is not specific to a particular party, although it is primarily um, in one political party like right now in a way that it hasn't been since the 1850s, maybe? 
And in that group, they're trying to disconnect us to make sure we can't understand each other's perspectives, that we fear and hate each other's perspectives, that we are ignorant of them so that they can build up an image of the other away from the reality of who we are in our fullness, right? And you can watch this election be more and more defined by those that want us to never be together and those that are trying to bring us together. Influencing change and uh, battling that is certainly borne out by the fact of how much there are certain forces trying to control what that education is. Um, one of the things, one of the other stories that came out this week that I think is very interesting is, again, that the, the administration is going after, the, the education administration is going after Princeton University. Their president came out, acknowledged the systemic racism that was at the core of their founding and in their history, and took proactive steps to address it. And I think there's such positivity connected to that. And yet the, the Department of Education is investigating them for um, you know, not meeting their obligations to the government, for you know, not being a racist organization. How can organizations go and tackle this without fear that the government is going to come after them because they've admitted what's going on and they're working to change it? The administration has taken this tax so that organizations will fear. They will fear that if they cop to a recognition of institutional racism, that they will make themselves liable for an accusation of overt racism. That's why the administration is doing it. So what you have is a situation where this notion of racism as something that's an intentional act, that that's the only kind of racism that counts, is moving to a minority position in the country. And what you have in the current administration, which understands that it is in a minority one of the voting public, but in a much bigger minority of the public at large. But they still want to rule. They still want to have power. And so now we're talking about, well, how does, um, you know, like the South African government, an apartheid government, has to have a way as a minority to maintain control, political control. So the administration is trying to find a way to maintain political control as a minority. And so, of course, they're going to put pressure on organizations to speak in just the ways that maintain minority power. In this case, that maintain a more racist society. And so they are trying to just get places like Princeton to, to say, Nope, we're in no way a part of racism. Uh, nope, we're not here. And basically what they want Princeton and other organizations to do is to cheerlead racism. Nope, we're not racist. Yes, there may have been some in the past, but there's none right now. Only see the positives, only talk in positive ways. And at the moment that any organization talks in complexity or a recognition of anti-racist perspectives, 
they've got to jump on those organizations. This is how you maintain power while you have the control. And again, they are a minority of the country. Their desperation is that once they lose control, they will never, ever get it back. This is the action of people who are frightened for their way of life as they understand it. These are the actions that they take. Another news story that came out this week, again, connected to education, and I think, you know, is is an attempt to get to people earlier in their educational life. Trump is actually coming out and blaming protests on what he's calling radical les- lessons about slavery and racism. Um, and he has said that he would create a 1776 commission, uh, which is an apparent effort to rebut the 1619 project, and that this commission will promote patriotic education. And it seems that there, see- there is a consistent approach to the discussion around racism to any effort around racism that if we don't talk about it, if we don't have it be visible to anybody, that it doesn't exist, that it that it's not there. And so this seems to be a blatant effort to remove it even further. I mean, quite frankly, I think the educational system that is in place and the way that we're taught history doesn't necessarily talk about the full scope of slavery and what that meant and the economic influence and impact that that's had through throughout history. Um, and this seems to be an effort to erase that even more, especially as he talks about defunding schools that, that are using the 1619 project in their curriculum. What What's your take on that? Oh, now we're into it. So, you probably have heard of the one-drop rule uh, where when they were trying to figure out whether or not somebody was black or not, the idea was even one drop of blackness in your ancestry made you black, which was also this weird argument for the potency of blackness, you know? And so when I hear you, I'm, I'm hearing that the 1619 Project, put out by the New York Times, is this powerful that all of a sudden the protest movements and everything else comes from that, and we've got to stop this anti-racism training, and look, 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 man, I do this anti-racism training. I would love to believe that that's where the protest started from. Uh, That's not where the protest started from. There's a generation, my goodness, maybe two generations beneath me at at this point. They had access to video. They saw how people were being killed and hurt and harassed. They saw it. And they knew that they weren't being told about that in their schools. Those protests started from those young people. You know what the protest I've been at? In San Francisco, at least. The people leading those protests, I mean, not, I mean, physically out in front as they were, mar- as we were all marching down the street, skateboarders. F- from my perspective, and I apologize for this, kids. They're the ones that did this. The anti-racism training hasn't started this, and the 1619 program didn't start this. Uh, 
what started this was at least one generation and maybe two now, you couldn't hide. You just couldn't hide from them. They know that we haven't been living our values. They know it because they saw it. And the thing is, is if you're going to cheerlead, if you're going to require the educational system without fail, only talk about the positives, you have to be perfect. You have to hide everything. It has to be every copy of the 1619 has to be burned and then whatever it is one does to digital things. You have to be complete about what you do because that truth, that perspective is so powerful. You have to fear it. Anybody that doesn't cheerlead is against you. Any educator, any person, any media outlet, Anyone that comes against you has to be purged. Now, now look at what you have on the other side. I have grown people coming up to me and saying, I did not know that this happened in Tulsa. I did not know that there was a Black Wall Street. I didn't know that these laws existed. I didn't know the Supreme Court did this. I didn't know that the New Deal and the credit from it came out like this. I didn't know, right? Because you weren't told. But not only were you not told in schools, how many movies have you seen? Like when we were talking earlier about the police, how many pro-police shows have been on television from the 70s through the 80s through the 90s for my generation, right? Up until you really get the proliferation of different kinds of stories on cable, that's the only thing that comes through. Go back to all of the movies that you've watched. I'm serious. Go back and look at the movies that you've watched. Go find black women in those movies. See how many out of all the movies that you've had have had one. Then look at the roles that they're in. Now, go back and find people of color in those movies. See what roles they're in. Go back just and trace how many hero movies you've seen. And how many of those heroes have been white males you're going to find that it's almost complete. It's almost the whole thing. We can start naming exceptions on one hand because it's not just what your educational system has done to teach you. It's what your whole world has done to teach you. And the whole world understood that just one difference, one movie going the other direction, could make it all go away if it was powerful enough. And so this has to be total. That's why what the administration is announcing is on the road to totalitarianism. Because it has to be complete in order to work. Because it recognizes the power of one voice going the other way. And what you have to understand is that when you look at your history and places that you don't even think about as your education, how total it has been from a white perspective in this country the entire time. They're just alerting you now hey, this other stuff is out here and we have to stop it. When you hear them say that, wonder how many ways it's been stopped from getting to you in your life, as old as you might be. There's an education to be had. It doesn't have anything to do with this administration and what they're trying to do. There's a history of yours that's been kept from you. There's an understanding of the world around you that's been 
kept from you. You have been segregated in ways that you don't completely understand. You have to go get that information now so that we can join together from our different perspectives and create a community and a world that doesn't have to be totalitarian, that can be different and still cool. What's happening right now actually reminded me of the, the trip to the Vatican and touring the Vatican and having them uh, explain how the, the frescoes on the walls were painted and then they were repainted to retell the history depending on what the proclivities were of the particular leader and what they wanted everybody to understand. And it's clear that, you know, this is the beginning of a fascist approach to controlling the population by controlling the flow of information. I think the problem is, is that this, this administration is trying to do it at a time when they can't control that information. They cannot be totalitarian in uh, destroying the history that is out there for anyone to see because of the internet, because of the connectivity, because of the of so many people who are out there. It was different in those days in Rome where they could paint something and then repaint it and generations would lose the, the truth of that history. They can't lose that now. And to your point, Byron, it's up to us to make sure that we are educated, that we know that history, and that we don't let them pervert the educational system for the children to come. Everybody has to know what this is. And just because it is a stain on the history, just because it's negative, doesn't mean we can't embrace it, understand it, and change the course of it. To me, that's the only way that you can change it is to understand it. And so it is absolutely critical that we continue to teach this information, that people grow up knowing that and don't get into their 40s and 50s and discover, you know, the, the challenges of racism and, you know, what happened not just in the, the 1800s and with the Civil War and with slavery, but since then and how it continues today. And if we're not educated, if we don't claim that, that's our responsibility and our failure as citizens of this country. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I, I think about this first with uh, the flashlight in the dark metaphor or analogy. If you wake up and, you know, you've had to do this thing that I've done, the dad thing, where it's like, okay, I heard a noise. I'm going to go investigate. So I get my flashlight and I can kind of see in the room, even though it's dark. But then when I turn on the flashlight, I can only see where the flashlight is pointed. The rest of the room gets darker as we shine a light in one spot. Uh, I think there are phenomenologists, this uh, German philosophy group, that said that which reveals also conceals. So as we shine a light in one spot, we create a darkness everywhere else. And what the administration can do is they can focus a light on 1619. And if you take that bait, then... The argument becomes, well, is 1619 good or is it bad? And then there will be all these Facebook discussions about, well, is it completely accurate or is it not? And all of that is about 1619. Meanwhile, 
all of your experiences in segregated neighborhoods and segregated workplaces in media that gives you segregated stories such that, you know, Hollywood's like, well, if we put a black female lead in there, nobody will come see the movie. You know what? And a lot of times they're right because you're so habituated to just seeing the white male in the hero thing. Like there is an entire lifetime of experience now put in the dark while we discuss whether or not 1619 is good or bad. And that's the way they win because they shine a light on one spot. And if we accept that that's where we're going to leave the light and we don't make sure that that light is shined all over the place, they're going to, they're going to win is the thing. And then on a second point, and maybe it's to get back to what we were talking about at the beginning, the thing about sports team fans is that they love those teams and they know those teams. They know the weaknesses. They know the strengths. They still have hope, well, as the season begins. But their hope doesn't come from cheerleading. And they're not just rah-rah all the time. You go to Sports Talk Radio and you will hear fans of teams break them down. And they break them down in love. It is possible to know your country, to know the horrors of your country, to know not just the past horrors, but how they trace into the present. It's possible to know how they are coming out of you and your habits and still love your country. This is my country. I am here. I know it. And I know the horrors of it. I teach the horrors of it. Not to hate the country, but to say this is where we are. This is where we're starting. This is how we fix it. This is how we get better. This is how we form a more perfect union. That doesn't come from the cheerleaders. The cheerleaders are not there to make the team better. It's the coaches and the fans who believe that they are coaches and general managers that are there to make it better. That's the love. Cheerleaders are not in the game Cheerleaders are on the sidelines. And when the president of the United States says that when it comes to COVID-19, he needs to be a cheerleader. I just want somebody to tell him he's in the game, that he's not the cheerleader, that he's there to fix it, to make it better. As we all are, we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, have to know where we're at We need to know the perspectives of the people that are here because it's all of us and all of these perspectives. And we need to know how bad it is where it's bad and how good it is where it's good. Now, you can't keep tearing it down. And I understand that there are people that just tear down. And I'm not about all that. I'm about building a community, but a community that knows each other. We can't trust each other. If we know that we're all being cheerleaders and just saying the good and afraid to say the bad or the bad will come in. And if we say it out loud and acknowledge it, it'll tear us apart, man. How people going to trust you? You have to acknowledge what's going on in those neighborhoods and that your tax dollars are paying for the police in those neighborhoods. And that the fact that your kids are in good schools means somebody's in bad schools. And the fact that we haven't had a revolution because they're putting those people in cages again, again in our history. If we're going to build 
the country we want this to be, a place where we can live our values, then we have to know this country. I'm not afraid to know my country. It's not going to stop me from wanting this to be a better place. It's not going to stop me from wanting to fight. But you know what? What they're telling you is that they'll only fight when it's talked about good. They're worried that their love for this country isn't strong enough to see the country as it really is. That's why they want to take us to fascism and totalitarianism. Because of the weakness of their love. They don't know what real love is. We need to know ourselves. We need to know each other. We need to know this country. That's the way to build. We all need to bring the light to anything that may be in the darkness, and it's our responsibility as citizens to do that. Byron, thank you for your perspectives today. Uh, Thank you. Always good to talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Out of Privilege podcast. Please subscribe on your podcast platform or sign up on outofprivilege.com to get updated on new episodes when they're available. Let us know what you think and feel free to share on social media.